Thank you guys for being with us today. Uh, as we continue our, our study of the book of Judges, it's interesting. I don't know if you've noticed as we go through these cycles, things seem to get darker and darker. And, and, and that's true today. And so I, I want to say as we get started that I have a clear change goal today. You can see the title of our message today, The Cost of False Worship. My change goal today is that the Lord would open our eyes to see the cost of our false worship whether you call it false worship or false religion or idolatry, that, that we would see the cost of that. Um, in the book of Jeremiah, the Lord prosecutes what you might call a covenant lawsuit against his unfaithful people. And in the early chapters of Jeremiah, it's so real and so raw and so heartbreaking because the Lord brings all these metaphors from marriage to describe the adulterous hearts of his people. So in Jeremiah 2, 12 and 13, we read this. He sa- the, the Lord says, Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked, be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewed out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So I want us to be appalled and shocked that we would trade God, the fountain of living waters, for broken cisterns. And then a few verses later in Jeremiah 2.19, we read, Know and see that it is evil and bitter for you to forsake the Lord your God. So I want us, as hard as that sounds this early in the morning, to know and see that it's evil and bitter for us to forsake the Lord. You might ask, well, why does that matter? Well, it matters because if we don't see the insanity and the futility and the emptiness of our false worship, we won't see the glory of what Christ has done for us in his life and death and resurrection. We won't see the incredible joy that we get to worship the living God, the true King. So our text this morning in Judges 17, it's unfamiliar to most of us. A number of commentators say that most people have never even heard a sermon or teaching on this passage. Um, It's one that you might avoid, but one thing I appreciate about our church is we keep on going through. (laughs) Let's, Let's get into the text and see what the Lord has for us. In this passage, it's interesting, the Lord's name is only on the character's lips. Uh, it's like the, the writer doesn't want to sort of mention the Lord apart from the character saying his name. But he's on their lips, but he's not in their hearts. And so what we see is this picture of life without God. But what's different than other passages in Judges, this is not a passage that shows us God's deliverance. It's actually a passage that shows us why we need his deliverance and why we're lost without it. So follow along with me as we read our text for this morning. This is Judges 17, the whole chapter, verses 1 through 13. There was a man of the hill country of Ephraim whose name was Micah, and he said to his mother, The 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, about which you uttered a curse and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver is with me. I took it. And his mother said, Blessed be my son by the Lord. And he restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother. And his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I will restore it to you. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. And it was in the house of Micah. And the man Micah had a shrine and he made an ephod and household gods and ordained one of his sons who became his priest. In those days, there was no king in Israel 
Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. Now there was a young man of Bethlehem in Judah of the family of Judah who was a Levite and he sojourned there. And the man departed from the town of Bethlehem in Judah to sojourn where he could find a place. And as he journeyed, he came to the hill country of Ephraim, to the house of Micah. And Micah said to him, where do you come from? And he said to him, I am a Levite of Bethlehem in Judah, and I'm going to sojourn where I may find a place. And Micah said to him, stay with me and be to me a father and a priest, and I'll give you 10 pieces of silver a year and a suit of clothes and your living. And the Levite went in. And the Levite was content to dwell with the man, and the young man became to him like one of his sons. And Micah ordained the Levite, and the young man became his priest and was in the house of Micah. Then Micah said, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. Let's pray together. Father, we bow before you this morning, remembering that you've made us to worship. Lord, and it's not a question of whether we will worship today, but that what we will worship. And so we pray that you would tune our hearts to worship you. Lord, that you would help us to see the ways that our hearts go astray, that we worship and find life in and look to all kinds of other things. Lord, help us to see the cost of that and bring us back. Help us to see what Jesus has done, that we might be true worshipers. Open our eyes, Holy Spirit. Help us to see what you have for us in this passage and help us by your grace to apply it to our lives even today. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want you to see that this chapter and its sort of flyby details shows us the tragic cost of our false worship. You notice that there's no despair, there's no cry for help, and there's no deliverance, at least in this passage. We see these characters living in a certain way a little over 3,000 years ago. And I want to help us move from the particulars of this passage to try to see the more universals that apply to us. So this isn't necessarily a three-point talk. I, I guess I'm, I'm throw a flag on me there. It's more like a six quick point talk. And so you probably won't remember six things. I encourage you to focus on one or two that seem most helpful for you. But the, the, the real controlling question is what is the cost of our false worship? The first thing I want us to see is we trade the true God for a God of our own making. If we look at the text, the writer just drops us right into the mess of Micah's story. We learn that Micah's a man from the hill country, and then immediately he starts talking. And he says to his mother, the 1,100 pieces of silver that were taken from you, in which you uttered a curse, and also spoke it in my ears, behold, the silver's with me. I took it. So the first thing we learn about Micah is he's the kind of man who steals precious metals from his mom. He's bad enough you know, to steal from his mom, but he's not so bad that he doesn't confess and return the silver when she utters a curse on the thief. But what I want you to see here is what happens next in verse 3. His mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son. Why? to make a carved image and a metal image. So she gets her silver back and she blesses her son in the name of the Lord after her speaking the curse a minute ago. And then she dedicates the silver to the Lord to make an image, an idol. So the name of Yahweh is on her lips, but even as she says his name, she's sinning against him by commissioning this image to be made. So it's a clear violation of the second commandment and Micah goes on to set up this shrine in his house, his own personal worship center. So what's wrong with that? 
The Lord was supposed to be the center of his people's worship and he had instructed his people to worship him in a certain place in a certain way. And at this time before the building of the temple, you had a tabernacle and in Judges 18.31, we read that the house of God was at Shiloh. That's where the tabernacle was. That's where the Lord called his people to meet with him. It was the house of God at Shiloh, not the house of God at Micah's house. (laughs) So even if Micah and his mother had good intentions in making this idol, that little household God reduced the glory of Israel to a carved object. It can't possibly represent God in all his perfections and all his glorious character. And so Micah and his mother were trading the glory of God for this little image. In Romans 1, Paul writes, and you might remember, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. That's what they did, talking about Paul and everything that's come before, and that's also what we do. It's just harder to see because we don't usually carve household gods. So let me briefly highlight two ways that we drift into false worship, trade the true God for something that's not. It's false worship when we act like we're worshiping God, but we refuse to worship him as he reveals himself in scripture. And what I mean by that is when we pick and choose aspects of his character uh, or of his word that work for us and ignore the rest. Uh, warning lights should be flashing when we hear things like, we can no longer accept a God who would say this or that about sexuality or some other topic. Or I don't believe that God would call me to suffer or go through hardship. Or I want a God of love. Like we gotta get rid of all that stuff about wrath or judgment. So it's a making of God in our own image when we pick and choose what we're going to accept and worship. It's also false worship, probably more clearly, when we turn away from God and find life in something else. And Tim Keller says it simply, says, if anything, if anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it's an idol. If anything becomes more fundamental than God to your happiness, meaning in life, and identity, then it is an idol. So we take some good thing that God has made or given to us, and we make it the ultimate thing, whether it's marriage, work, sex, food, power, money, kids, comfort, hobbies, Sometimes we forsake God altogether for one of these things. Sometimes we use God as a means to get these things. Either way, it takes us down the road of false worship. So after this twisted tale about Micah and his mother, the interesting thing we get from the narrator is the judge's refrain in verse six. It's like the only thing he can say about all that's happening is, in those days, there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And that's what Micah's doing. That's the essence of false worship. We reject the real king, we make ourselves king, and we do what seems right to us. And sometimes we do it because it's convenient. It's kind of convenient to move the worship center to your house. (laughs) Sometimes we do it because we're trying to manipulate God to serve our purposes. Ultimately, we do it, I think, because we want something more than we want him. Do we realize that our idolatrous hearts trade God for something that in comparison is worthless? That is quite a cost. So that's the first thing. Second, in our false worship, we trade objective morality for subjective morality. In in one of his novels, Dostoevsky has a character say, if God is dead, everything is justifiable. 
It's a really frightening statement, but you can actually appreciate what the character is saying because they're at least following their beliefs to the logical conclusion. Because if there's no God to give us an absolute standard or law, then what, what should stop people from just doing whatever they want? If it's a world of kings and queens, everyone doing what's right in their own eyes, then all you're left with is power. You know, who's going to win? <laughs> and that train of thought explains so much of the tyranny and violence that we've seen for the last 200 years, you might say. When we turn away from God, we lose our moral compass and we start making it up as we go. So note the downward spiral in Judges 17. In verse 2, Micah's stealing from his mother. In verse 3, we're turning that silver into an idol. In verses 4 and 5, we're setting up an unauthorized worship center. In verse 5, we're ordaining an unauthorized priest. It just seems like anything goes. There's no awareness of the law of God. Uh, there's no awareness of right or wrong. And the illustration I want to share with you is, is kind of silly, but I think it also reflects a broader trend in our culture. Years ago, someone asked me to officiate a wedding in Florida, and I was unable to do it. And the bride's quick response was, oh, don't worry about it. My brother who's in college, he can get ordained online. And I was like, wow, okay. So all my studying and seminary and ordination, that was just a huge waste of time and money. And, and I knew that wasn't right, but it, it just struck me like how quickly we'll just make it up as we go. And maybe you say defile the sacred or just it doesn't matter. Like what's the right way to do this? We're just going to get it done. I think we see that all around us. And then we're tempted to step into that. Do we ever live like God doesn't actually exist? You could call it functional atheism. You, you, you kind of at the end of the day, you're like, wow, I wasn't really aware of God all day long. Or, or do we ever see someone else sinning and we expect judgment for them when we're perhaps doing the same thing ourselves? Or do we ever bend the law of God for the sake of our personal advancement or pleasure? Do we ever live like God is dead and we can do whatever we want? It's this false worship that leads to a moral relativism. That's the second thing. The third thing, in our false worship, we trade real grace for cheap grace. Here I want to focus a little bit on the interaction between Micah and his mother. We have to kind of read between the lines because it happens so fast, but if you were to reconstruct it, it seems like Micah stole 1,100 pieces of silver from his mother. Not knowing who robbed her, <laughs> she pronounces a curse on the thief. And then not wanting to be under a curse, Micah confesses to the crime then not wanting her son to be cursed, the mother turns and pronounces a blessing on Micah. So what's missing? <laughs> I, and I just thought, well, everything that's needed in a healthy relationship, the kind of contrition that would ask for forgiveness from the offended party. Mom, I'm so, I feel terrible about what I did. We don't see any of that. Or the kind of forgiveness that doesn't just sort of condone and brush it under the rug, but, you know, do the costly work and absorb the wrong into yourself. We don't really see that. And then the kind of reconciliation that actually destroys the hostility and restores the fellowship, brings the sweetness of the relationship back. From what I can tell, none of that happened. Micah didn't come with godly sorrow. He was more scared, I think, about the curse. Mom didn't offer gospel grace. This is cheap grace. This is grace without the cross, you might say, or forgiveness without repentance. Is this going to really teach Micah anything going forward? Assuming you can have a healthy relationship without dealing with the heart issues. That's what seems to be going on for me here. 
So when Christ is not at the center of our lives, when we're not abiding in him, when we're not seeking to live a life of worship in his presence, in the presence of our brothers in Christ, we're disconnected from the gospel of grace. Something else is at the center. Something else is the source. Something else is the object of our worship. And what we start to see is that becomes apparent in dysfunctional relationships. So we can look at our relationships as hard as that might be, but look at our relationships with a spouse or parents or children or friends or coworkers and ask, do I see similar dysfunction in my relationships? So when things fall apart, am I turning to Christ and to the gospel to help put things back together? Am I looking to him for his life-changing grace to restore things? Or am I stuck in this strange cycle of cheap grace? like a mother who's cursing her son and the next moment blessing him and like, but nothing really happened to change things. Someone sins against us and instead of having this gospel moment, we just say something like, it's okay. And that's not real grace. That's not real reconciliation. Or we sin against someone else and we don't feel any godly sorrow. Uh, we don't ask for forgiveness. We just hope that it'll be okay. That's not real grace. So Jesus transforms real lives and real relationships. And if we don't have a regular experience of the gospel changing things, perhaps our worship has gone astray. We can look to the heart. We can look to the root. Say, what's going on? That's the third thing. Fourth, in our, worship, in our false worship, we trade real transformation for appearances. And this is related to what I just said about real grace and cheap grace, but it kind of takes it a step further because we look at Micah and it seems like we have a man here who's focused on the external, not the internal. So we have the idol and the household shrine that he sets up. And since we have those, we need a priest. And so he starts with his son and makes him a priest, even though he's not a Levite. And now we have the appearance of a good worship center. But then a Levite walks by. <laughs> we need that guy. So we grab him, make him the priest. Now things look even better. And what's behind this, Micah tips his hand in verse 13. If you look at it, he says, now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have a Levite as a priest. This is the formula of false worship. You know, I do the right inputs and God will give me the desired outputs. My external performance of my religious duties will lead to God's blessing. Now I know that the Lord will prosper me because I have this or because I'm doing this or because I'm going to this, but it doesn't work. You remember what the Lord told Samuel in 1 Samuel 16, 7. He says, this is about you know, trying to find who the next king is, and ultimately it's David, but Samuel couldn't see it. He says, for the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. Or remember what Jesus said when he was talking to the religious leaders and quoted Isaiah. This is in Mark 7, verse 6. This people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain, he says, do they worship me. Or remember what Paul said about people and the way they would be in the last days in 2 Timothy 3, first five verses. He, he ends that by saying these are people who have the appearance, the external of godliness, but deny its power. So our false worship, our idolatry, it can actually lead to apparent success. Things can look good. Things kind of looked good for Micah, his worship shrine there. We can look good in the eyes of the world. We can feel good about our efforts to do the right thing and be in the right place, but inwardly it's empty because outward religion never gets to the heart. 
It's the relationship with Jesus that gets to the heart. We can have the appearance of godliness but deny its power. So there's always this futility and this fragility to our false worship, whether it's more religious or it's success or marriage or sex or sports or children or money, you name it. All these things are basically making promises. I can save you, I can deliver you, I can define you, but they can't do it. In Judges 18, if you read on, people come and steal Micah's household gods. They, they sort of raid his shrine. <laughs> and you know what Micah says in that moment? I think this is verse 24 in chapter 18. He says, you take my gods that I made and the priest and go away, and what have I left? It's such a tragic moment. You know, Micah, did you really think there was something solid about the gods that you had to make? Like one minute they weren't there and then you made them and then you're surprised that someone stole them and they go away. But think about this, brothers. If our gods are so weak that in a moment or at death or a change in the market or whatever, they can be taken away, then we're building our house upon sand. And there's a lot of good things you can do with sand, but building a house is not one of them. So that's the fourth thing we trade, the real transformation for appearances. Fifth, in our false worship, we trade giving all to God for holding something back. Look at verses three and four again. Micah restored the 1,100 pieces of silver to his mother, and his mother said, I dedicate the silver to the Lord from my hand for my son to make a carved image and a metal image. Now, therefore, I'll restore it to you. Think about the math. So when he restored the money to his mother, his mother took 200 pieces of silver and gave it to the silversmith who made it into a carved image and a metal image. So the math doesn't add up. She gets 1,100 pieces of silver back. She dedicates it to the Lord. Then she gives away 200 pieces, keeping 900 for herself. For a similar story with a different ending, you go to Acts chapter 5 and read about Ananias and Sapphira. But the point is, when we go down the road of false worship, we always hold something back. And here's why. Because when we worship the true God, we bow before him. We honor him. We love him. We have to acknowledge his authority and submit to his will or it's not worship because he's God, we're not. So true worship brings us into the presence of God and, he, and, and we acknowledge that he's the one who demands and deserves our all. But in false worship, we end up exalting ourselves and our preferences. So we hold something back. We hedge our bets because we're in control. Surely it doesn't require all of me. And we're all tempted, I think, to worship a God who doesn't demand anything of us, who never contradicts us or challenges us or makes us uncomfortable. But think about that. If God really is the real God and he is who he says he is and we are, we are what the Bible, I mean, shouldn't God be contradicting us and challenging us and making us uncomfortable? Yes, because he wants to transform us into the image of Christ. In this piece called Three Dollars Worth of God, Wilbur Reese writes this. He said, I would like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I would like to buy just a little of the Lord. Not enough to explode my soul and disturb my sleep. Not enough to take control of my life. I want just enough to equal a cup of warm milk. Just enough to ease some of the pain from my guilt. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I'd like to find a love that's pocket-sized. I don't want enough of God to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. Not enough to change my heart. I can only stand just enough to take to church when I have time. 
just enough to equal a snooze in the sunshine. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, but not a new birth. I would like to purchase a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. If it doesn't work, I'd like to get my money back. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I'd like to hide some for a rainy day. Not enough for people to see a change in me. Not enough to impose any responsibility. Just enough to make folks think I'm okay. Could I just get $3 worth of God, please? I ran into that years ago and it's always reminded me of my desire to hold something back. Lord, what's the least I have to do to be a disciple? The $3 worth of God will never satisfy because God won't play that game. $3 Jesus is not Jesus. It's not the real Jesus. Interestingly, when Micah gets his idol stolen in Judges 18, I mentioned this a minute ago, he says at the end, what have I left? Judges 18, 20, what have I left? You, you took my stuff, what have I left? When we're worshiping idols, we sooner or later end up there. And the answer is simple, we have nothing left because idols essentially are nothing. What's amazing is a disciple of Christ can actually say the exact opposite of that. We can lose everything in the world and in this life. And if we have Jesus, we have everything. You remember what Peter said in John 6, 68, after there's the mass exodus, Jesus is scaring people away. <laughs> and Jesus asked the disciples, do you want to go away as well? And you can sort of imagine the whole movement could have ended right there. <laughs> and Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. We've believed and have come to know you are the Holy One of God. What have I left? That's the tragic question of false worship. Where else can I go? That's the glorious declaration of true worship. Where else can I go? You have the words of life. So what would inspire us to give ourselves to Jesus with no reservation? I've had a chance to hear Rick Lehman speak a couple times in the last few days and heard him talk about around this topic, so it's fresh in my heart. It's the vision of Jesus giving himself for us with no reservation. For us, the ultimate cost of our false worship was actually God. We turned away and we lost God. We lost the most precious treasure in the universe. We lost him because of our sin. But for Jesus, the ultimate cost of our false worship was his own life. He knew the cup he had to drink. He knew the hell that he'd have to go through. And Jesus gave himself without reservation he went to the cross for us and he stayed there for us and he cried, it is finished for us and he died, he laid down, gave up his life for us. And three days later, he rose for us. Christ gave himself without reservation knowing that he would get rejection and wrath and death before his vindication. You think about what Jesus did. Like, how can we not give ourselves to him when he has promised love and grace and an embrace and life now and life eternal? Why would we not throw ourselves into that as much or more than we throw ourselves into anything else in this life that excites us? So what holds us back from giving ourselves to Jesus, from experiencing that abundant life that he came to offer? So sixth and finally, in our false worship, we trade eternal satisfaction for fleeting pleasure. 
This is the most tragic calculation that we make as sinners because what we do is we look at sin, which is actually death, and we think it's life. We think sin is good for us. We think it's appealing and think it tastes good. And then we look at Jesus, who is life, and we think he's death. We think he's not good for us. It's not appealing, doesn't taste good. You think about where was Micah looking for life when he was stealing from his mom and making an idol and building his own worship center? And where are we looking for life when we're doing whatever we're doing that isn't really centered on Jesus Christ? It's a familiar passage from The Weight of Glory by C.S. Lewis, but I think it captures this really well. He says this, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We're half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what's meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. And that's the problem with false worship, with all its allure. <laughs> it seems so great, I'm gonna go after this and it's gonna give me life. It's actually so much less, it's infinitely less. We're far too easily pleased. God is offering us so much more. And the beauty of it is the king of kings. You know, we see there's no king on the scene apparently in Judges, but the king of kings came and he came to redeem and renew our worship. He came to bring us back to him, knowing the cost that it was gonna be for him and to rescue us from the folly and the emptiness of our false worship. And our king, he invites us to turn away from our mud pies today, whatever they are, so that we can enjoy all that he is offering us in Christ. You remember the words of Psalm 1611, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy, not anywhere else. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore, not anywhere else. So do we know, can we feel, do we see, like we talked about in Jeremiah at the beginning, that's evil and it's bitter, for us to forsake the Lord our God? And, and do we know, do we see, can we feel that he's done everything necessary to bring us back and restore our worship, to give us the kind of joy and life and love that we've been looking for everywhere else? Maybe even yesterday, maybe even this morning. It's a new day. It's a chance by God's grace to worship him and do the thing that he made us for. I read this story recently about Brother Lawrence, who was the 17th century monk who wrote the little book, Practicing the Presence of God, which has encouraged a lot of people. But the story goes that when Brother Lawrence was on his deathbed and he was rapidly losing his strength and he had friends and people around him and he just continued to witness to the people who gathered around him. And he said, I'm not dying. He says, I'm just doing what I've been doing for the past 40 years. I'm doing what I expect to be doing for all eternity. And they were obviously interested and they said, what is that? And he just said, I'm worshiping the God I love. Let's pray together. Father, we pray that you might give us that simplicity today, that you would help us, that you would um, so captivate our hearts that we would feel like whatever we're doing today and for as many days as you give us on this earth that we would be able to say, I'm just doing what I've been doing ever since the Lord brought me to himself. I'm worshiping the God I love. It's what I'm gonna be doing for eternity. Lord, help us not to be distracted 
by all the things that draw us away from the beauty and the glory and the joy of worshiping the King of kings and Lord of lords. Thank you for coming to bring us back and to restore our worship. Pray that you would bless these conversations this morning, Lord. Help us to see um, the, the folly and the insanity of what we do, what we chase after, but then help us even more to see the beauty of our Savior and how he has chased after us, even to give us a new heart, a heart that worships you. So Lord, thank you for this time in your word. Bless these brothers as they seek to know and love one another. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks, guys. Have a great day, and remember, next week is our last week.